0: Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, September 3rd. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, as he promised, President Biden ended America's longest war by withdrawing the last of American troops this week from Afghanistan. That decision, and what is widely perceived as a disastrous execution of the withdrawal strategy, will likely haunt Biden for some time to come, including in the 2022 midterms. Also this week, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia once again laid claim to the title of most consequential person on Capitol Hill as he promoted what he called a strategic pause in the Democratic push for a big, expensive tax bill. But many believe that, at least these days on Capitol Hill, legislation delayed is legislation denied. So Democrats have a big decision on their hands about how to move forward, and in California, voters are already sending in their ballots for the recall election scheduled for September 14th recent polls seem to give governor gavin newsom an advantage but here's a news flash from the election teams at real Clear politics polls have been wrong in the past Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Bevan, Real Clear Politics co-founder and president, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and Phil Wegman, White House correspondent. So Tom, let's start with the president and the polls. Steve Collinson, he's writing for CNN's website today and he says this is the worst time for Democrats in Biden's 7-month term. How bad is it and what are the political repercussions?
1: Well, it's bad and getting worse and we don't know uh you know, when it's going to stop. There is uh we've had a bunch of polls come out just in the last few days and all of them have had pretty bad news for the president. He's declined. He now there's not a single poll in our average which has two, four, six, eight, ten polls in it that have him over fifty percent. He's at forty Forty-five point two in the Real Clear Politics average, which is uh, as low as he's ever been, and his disapproval rating now is nearing fifty percent. It's forty-nine point three, and most of this is Afghanistan. Uh, the Washington Post poll showed that a vast majority of folks um, approved of the, with the withdrawal, and but only uh, you know a handful approved of Biden's handling of the withdrawal, um, and that was among certainly among Republicans, but also among independents and most Democrats. And so it has been a real struggle for the administration. Um, And meanwhile, we've had COVID, we've had the storms, we've had wildfires, we've had uh, all sorts of other things going on. Uh, Some real not great economic numbers this morning, a big miss on the jobs report, sort of added to Biden's woes. So I think I think it is. And as you mentioned, now, with Joe mentioned coming out, I mean, all of this was sort of sucking momentum away from his domestic agenda, which was already sort of in a precarious spot. They were going, Democrats had a, adopted this strategy that they were going to have to thread this needle, trying to please progressives in the House uh, and the the moderates in the Senate. And that looks to be on life support at this point. And if they don't get anything on the domestic side, not a lot of, not a lot of uh, goodies in the basket to, to take to the American people next November.
0: So Carl, Sean Trendy had a good piece yesterday on RCP talking about the midterms and the possible effect of these low poll ratings, or at least the correlation between the two. Just fill me in. What did, what did Sean say? And what's your take on that?
2: Well, it's analysis I'd encourage listeners to look at. It's very complete. But in terms of what you just asked me, Andy, and what Tom was talking about, um, Sean writes that the most important predictor for whether a midterm election turns out uh, badly for the party of the president is that president's job approval rating. And 46% 46% is almost like, you know, 50% the magic number. You want to be above 50%. If you're above 50%, your party can withstand the natural tendency of midterms to go against the president. Below that, they can't. 46%, which is right where Biden is now. I mean, the chances of the Democrats holding the House and the Senate are, are very small. But I, I have to say, this is, you know, the election isn't today. I mean, I, I like to say every, every horse race poll question begins with a lie. Uh, the pollsters asked the voter, if the election were held today, how would you vote? Well, they know damn well it isn't held today. Now that's changing because people are able to vote by mail. They can vote for months. So that's more fluid than it used to be. But the interesting thing and and what all Democrats are looking at, is there a precedent? Is there a way for presidents who fall below the Mendoza line to get back up? Um, if you, If a president loses his credibility, can he regain it? That to me is the great question because Poll numbers right now shouldn't mean much, but you look how hard it is in history for presidents to regain credibility once they've lost it. I mean, the American people come to a point where they tune a president out. It happened to Jimmy Carter. It happened to, uh, it happened to Herbert Hoover. You know, Roosevelt is famous for saying, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But Hoover had been saying a variation of that for a year, but by then nobody was listening to him. It happened to George W. Bush in his last
0: year and and, or two in office. So
2: Biden has to figure out a way and the Democrats have to figure out a way to get that, to get those numbers back up.
0: Well, I'm going to go to Phil in a second, but Carl just tells what the Mendoza line is because you've used oh, Well,
2: the Mendoza line in baseball was hitting 200. And I, 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 in my rough analogy from Sean's story, 46% is the Mendoza line right now. Uh, below that, the Democrats are really in trouble. But let me, let me just
1: add to that. Cause Sean said specifically, you know, uh, the chances of, of, Democrats holding the Senate are 4% when he's at when when Biden's at 46% and the range is anywhere from 0 to to 4 seats but the most likely outcome is minus 2 seats for the Democrats. You know, we had some numbers out this week uh in the New Hampshire Senate race and that's a place I've mentioned before where last month Biden was at 50%, 50-49 is job approval rating. This month it flipped to 44-54 so he's suddenly underwater by 10 points and you have uh, Maggie Hassan, Democrat running for re-election there, she's now down eight points uh, to Sununu in the latest uh, St. Anson poll, which just came out. You've got, you know, Marco Rubio down in Florida in in a close race. He's up two points, um, anywhere from two to 11, I guess. And the, we had a couple of polls there. You've got a close race going on in Georgia. And so if Biden isn't able to recover – um, he's going to be a drag on these senate candidates and it's it's not going to be uh it's not going to be a good ride for for them uh, in in november again long way away but still
0: well phil you've been over at the white house um what's the mood at the white house these days given everything that's going on
3: uh the mood is uh defiant historicism maybe uh i think that what's interesting is you've got the administration sticking to this binary when they talk about Afghanistan, because they understand the polling. They know that the majority of the American public uh, supports getting out of Afghanistan. They realize that their predecessor wanted to get out of Afghanistan as well. And so Biden, as well as his deputies, have consistently been pointing to uh, the fact that everyone wanted to leave. And so their strategy thus far has been to focus on the overall argument for why it was time to end this 20-year war rather than get into the nitty-gritty over how the withdrawal actually happened. The polling shows that that hasn't been necessarily very successful because the public is looking at how this actually occurred and how you know, this thing was, was pulled off. The 13 service members who, who lost their lives are a, a very unfortunate exclamation point here. And I'm not certain if, you know, again, election day is far away. I'm not certain the debacle in Afghanistan is what gets voters to the polls. But what it does do is it sort of shatters this veneer that Biden ran on, which was that he could be the sort of elder statesman who would be the adult in the room who could bring together a house divided here at home and then nationally restore us on, on the world stage. That's gone. He had this big test. It's pretty clear that, that he bumbled it. And um, yeah. So if you're you know representative Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania and you're looking to run behind someone, are you going to run behind Biden? I don't know. If you're Senator Mark Kelly in Arizona, are you going to run behind Biden? Uh, I- I'm not sure. They've got to figure this out in a hurry. And, and thus far, they seem to be very grateful for the uh, the long weekend and hoping that uh, they can sort of move past this thing.
2: Can I introduce one additional thought to this? Sean Trinity is looking at all these elections back to Roosevelt's time, but there is one variable here that it wasn't present in previous midterms, and that's Donald J. Trump. You know, one of the things that has hurt Biden is that he's now being judged as Biden. There were a, a majority of the American people voted against Donald Trump. They didn't want Trump there and Trump's still there uh in in the democrats telling you know Terry McAuliffe is running for governor of Virginia and I'll, he's you don't even know the name of his appoint, opponent he's running against Trump and in some ways Biden's been Biden's been comparing himself to Trump he he tried to blame Trump for this uh, exit calamity in Afghanistan but Trump is not on the scene now and Biden's being judged now by by himself he's being judged on these merits these these poll numbers aren't just out of the blue. They kind of reflect Americans' anxiety about this administration. But if Donald Trump reenters the scene, I can see how uh, the Democrats could could do something that's rare to do in history, which is how they could hold their own uh, with an unpopular president. Because as unpopular as Biden is, Donald Trump might be even less popular. Phil mentioned that Afghanistan has sort of shattered this veneer of, of
1: Biden's you know, competence and the adults are back in charge and all that. The other thing that it's done is it's taken a real bite out of his personal credibility. I mean, he's been engaged in, in obfuscation and in telling outright lies to the American people, and which, again, we found out after the fact, we, we find out these things. Um, we just had this leaked phone call with this transcript uh, where he was telling the Afghan leader to, you know, whether it's real or not, whether it's true or not, we need to put forward the perception that this is going well. And that's the kind of stuff that that doesn't come back, right? Once you sort of lose the the, the trust with the American people, if they don't believe that you're telling them, you're being straight with them. And again, that's what he promised that he would do during the campaign, right? That Donald Trump was a, was a congenital liar and that Biden was a truth teller and he was always going to level with us, whether it was good, bad, or otherwise. Um, That's the kind of stuff that once that's gone, that isn't coming back. Well, Tom, that's but that's the point I was making.
2: Normally, you're right. But if Donald Trump, if he announces he's running again, if he enters the arena in some way that he hasn't so far, um, and then it, it becomes a comparison of Biden's credibility versus Trump's credibility, the only idea I was introducing is that this that might that might change the historic dynamic. I have no idea if we will, but that's what I was talking about. Can, can a president get back his credibility? Hard to do. But can a president compared to Donald Trump get back his credibility? Well, we don't
0: know. Maybe. Phil, I want to talk about Joe Manchin in a second, but Tom brought up this phone conversation from July 23rd that Reuters reported. And uh, Reuters says they have a transcript of it. They've got a recording of it. So I don't think there's any question about the veracity of it. I'm just going to Quote what President Ghani from Afghanistan told him. He said, "Mr. President, we are facing a full-scale invasion composed of Taliban, full Pakistani planning and logistical support, and at least ten to fifteen thousand international terrorists, predominantly Pakistanis." Jansaki didn't deny it, but she said she wouldn't comment on it. To Tom's point, is this going to really test the credibility
3: of the White House, especially if the press sort of? presses them on on this sort of thing. The last briefing that I was in on Wednesday, I wanted to ask Jen Psaki about her answer because thus far she has said, I'm not going to comment on private conversations. This is a very frustrating answer that I've also gotten uh, myself. For instance, when I put to her this question um, of whether or not the Washington Post reporting was accurate that the Taliban offered the United States control of the city of Kabul and we went back to them and said, no, no, we just want the airport. The Washington Post has reported that. I asked um, Jen Psaki if that was true, and she told me that she wasn't going to get into private conversations. Remember, those are private conversations between the U.S. government and the Taliban that she wouldn't comment on. We see something else very similar here when she was asked about the Reuters report, which is, you know, is this back and forth between the president and the, the former Afghan president? Is that true? And, and what does she say? She says she's not going to get into private conversations. Well, this is ridiculous. Why? Because the standard that was set by the Biden administration before they were with the Biden administration was that they were going to pounce on this sort of stuff. Back during the campaign, um, you know, Biden world made hay time and time again out of not just uh, the intelligence that was unverified about um uh, bounty gate, the idea that Russia was putting bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers, but they also commented relentlessly on um, the leaked audio uh, between uh, President Trump and uh, Ukrainian President um, Zelensky. Uh, And so it's interesting that when they are out of office, they're more than uh, eager to talk about some of these leaked tapes that hurt their opponents when they're in office. You know, they don't want to have that conversation. That's very frustrating because You know, what was Biden's, like Biden, he always likes to do this folksy thing where he says things like, let me be clear. I'm not joking. I'm always going to shoot straight with you. Well, if you're going to shoot straight with us, if you're going to be clear, explain why you said these things or deny um, this report outright. They haven't done that. Come on, Phil.
2: He never promised to talk truthfully to the Afghani president, only to the voters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it took about two seconds to find Jen Psaki's tweet from back in the campaign where she said, "Well, we just, you know, we definitely need the transcript and we need the
2: whistleblower complaint.
3: Can't can't do without those." Uh, well, hell, Tom.
2: Yeah, I mean, they impeached they impeached Donald Trump over a private conversation.
3: And th- th- this isn't like you know, this isn't opinion dressed up as analysis. This is just like this is what you did when you weren't in power, and this is what you're doing now when you're in power. I'm not sure if like enough people are going to see this sort of new posture on like the six o'clock news. I don't know if enough voters are actually going to see this and be frustrated, but it's pretty disingenuous um, from an administration that promised that they were going to be incredibly candid with the press.
0: Well, Tom, let's talk about the, the Hill and my favorite topic, uh, infrastructure. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Senator Joe Manchin, uh, he has a piece out today, Friday, in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, why I won't support spending another $3.5 trillion. This is a quote from him. He says, instead of rushing to spend trillions on new government programs and additional stimulus funding, Congress should hit a strategic pause on the budget reconciliation legislation. So what is the democratic leadership's strategy here. I mean, if, if they lose Manchin and Cinema, Sinema, uh, just for example, this thing is toast, isn't it? I mean,
1: Democrats think Manchin's like the turd that jumped in the punch bowl. I mean, he's just ruining it for everybody.
2: He's ruining it for me. He's going to cost me my bet with you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't think I didn't notice that, Carl. And it wasn't clear from his op-ed
1: what he would support. He just said, "I'm not supporting three and a half trillion. That's way too much. We got to be. There's all this money out there. We've got inflation. We've got deficits. We need to, as you said, strategically pause and and think about this and talk through it. And, but I mean, is he is he going to support a trillion, a trillion and a half, two trillion? We don't know. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is frustrating Democrats and and heartening Republicans a little bit. So. We will see. But again, this was always a very fraught strategy for for the Democrats, the way that they've gone about this. Now the question is whether Nancy Pelosi could still decide to decouple these bills and just put infrastructure to a test in the House and hope that whatever defection she's gonna get from the progressives, the AOCs and the like, who demanded that the budget was voted on before infrastructure, that she can make those up with Republicans. But I'm not I don't know that she could. I mean, it's not clear. Uh, we don't know how many Republicans would vote for infrastructure in the House right now. So it's just gotten very murky. And as Jonathan Chait, we ran his his counterpiece, He's, he's his argument, the title on his piece is he's put Biden's uh, domestic agenda in mortal danger. That sounds a bit overwrought, but I'm not sure that it is. I mean, this is a really, this is a very dicey moment for, for Democrats and, and for the president, in terms of whether they walk away with something or whether it all blows up and they end up getting nothing.
0: Carl, I'm just wondering and this might be sort of a little too much chess when when the world is playing checkers, but do you think that they have just factored in the idea that they're going to lose in the midterms and if they don't try to run the table right now, they're going to end up with nothing.
2: Well, look, some of the progressives have made this argument uh, overtly. So, you know they've read the stage directions. Look, we got to do this now. They have been some have been open about it. Um not progressives in Congress as much, but outside. It's not cynical. It's 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 almost idealistic. You know, these they had these things, they had a veto-proof majority for a while while Obama was president and never even proposed a minimum wage increase. I mean, you know, you have this authority, you have this power, why not use it? I that makes some sense to me. Although I do not think most Democrats are conceding the House yet. When they read Sean Trinity's story, <laughs> over the weekend and digest the poll numbers, they may change their minds, but I don't think they're there yet anyway. So what do you think?
3: It's interesting because for Republicans, Joe Manchin seems to be a bit of a savior right now. At the same time, you've got uh, folks like Ted Cruz and others who are telling their house colleagues uh, not to count on them for the, the the Senate to save them. Because if you read that op-ed, what is, what is is Manchin getting behind? He didn't say... Uh, no trillion dollar package. He said no to a 3.5 trillion dollar package. So maybe there's something much smaller. Maybe there's some kind of compromise. And as as the the calendar starts to uh, you know tick down, maybe the the Biden White House decides that they're going to take half a loaf so that you know Democrats don't have to go to the voters empty-handed. What is interesting here, though, is you know there hasn't been a tea party movement on the right. And I think a lot of that is because there's no credibility for a lot of these Republicans who are talking about debt and deficits, because they talked about it during the Obama years, they promised they were going to do something. And then the moment they got into power, all of their considerations about uh, the balance sheet went out the window. But one one guy who, you know, can uh, stand up to his party right now is, is Joe Manchin. Um, he seems to have some credibility and he seems to be having a, a bit of a lonely tea party. And his argument is, what happens during the next crisis? What are we going to do if we spend all of this money now? Um, we're we're going to be shortchanged when we have to spend a lot of cash to combat you know, the next terrorist attack, the next recession, um, the next pandemic. So um, it's, it's an interesting uh, role for him to play. I'm not certain if in the end, he's going to hold the line or or if he's going to you know settle for, for something much smaller. Uh, but it certainly is giving the, the Biden administration fits. And Joe Manchin has, has never been more bold than right now.
0: Well, Carl, let's go to California. Um, that recall election is coming up. That was a good week for Governor Newsom, it sounds like. Polls are uh, showing him uh, shoring up his lead. But it's a complicated vote. Uh, and it's really about turnout, it seems to me. How do you see it right now? And should the Democrats in California be happy with what the polls are showing?
2: Well, uh, Susan Crabtree um, had a story for us this week about it. Yeah, this new poll shows that Newsom is weathering the recall effort. And he's, he's over 50 percent uh, in in our poll average, do not remove 52.2 uh, uh, percent. And that's the, that's these new polls that Trafalgar KABC Survey USA uh, have him weathering it, but what you don't know is if those people will really vote. The one thing that worries Democrats there is Newsom seems to lack, and I won't say support in the Hispanic community, but uh, and that in California it's mostly Mexican Americans. But he he's not there's no passion for him. There doesn't seem to be energy for him there. Uh, the best thing he's got going for him though, is this Republican field. Although you you say that the vote's complicated, that that ballot, it's a weird one, right? You vote first. Do you want to impeach the guy? Do do you want to recall him? Yes or no? Uh, If it's no, it's moot. If it's yes, then you go to the second ballot and you don't know when you're filling out the second ballot, how the first one's going to turn out. Then you have to do this as a California voter, this mental exercise. Okay. But if you did get rid of him, who would you get rid of? And, you know, there's all these Little-known Republicans like Kevin Faulconer, the former mayor of San Diego, very respectable and respected guy, but little known, and then you know Larry Elder and Caitlin Jenner. So there is no Arnold Schwarzenegger this time, and there's no, there's not even a Cruz Bustamante this time. He was lieutenant governor, uh, who was who was in in office when Gray Davis was recalled in two thousand three. So the numbers right now look good for Newsom, but as you say. We don't know how enthusiastic Democrats are and whether they return these ballots. We know that the Republicans are a real minority in their state, but they seem galvanized. And so it's a question of numbers versus passion. You know, Uh, can 300 Spartans defeat 10,000 Persians? Probably not. They didn't the first time. Uh, And the numbers aren't that bad for Republicans in California. And the other thing is these early votes we learned last time, Democrats are more willing to fill out, you know, vote by mail and Republicans like to vote on the last day. So the expe- expectation is that those numbers will tighten.
0: Tom, is there is there danger that with these poll numbers, Democrats will become complacent and just say, well, okay, it looks like we've got it, no need to vote, and uh, the Republicans will sneak it through?
1: That is a concern, but the, it does look like the Democrats who who were sleeping for a long time, it's, you know, sort of got and this is a weird one, right? It's September fourteenth. It's a it's an odd date. So, how many people are actually going to turn out in person on that day versus mailing in their ballots? They mail ballots to every person in California, apparently. So, it's. Um, I'm sure there'll be no fraud
2: whatsoever. None,
1: none whatsoever. <laughs> um, so, but but certainly the last round of polls, the three polls that Carl mentioned, um, were were really good news for Gavin Newsom. It was looking it was a lot tighter. Uh, he seems to have gotten Democrats engaged finally and and that 's a good thing because they do vastly outnumber Republicans and so if they don't need to engage that many to win this thing but uh but again we 'll have to see how it, how it actually turns out i mean um, this is a tricky tricky thing to poll uh especially on a date like this so but right now I think uh I think it's an uphill battle for for the recall folks.
0: So what about Larry Elder? Um, You know, there was this piece in the LA Times, uh, it's a column calling Larry Elder, quote, the black face of white supremacy. Um, Pretty ugly
3: stuff, it seems to me. What do you think? I don't know how you sneak a headline like that past an editor. I know I know Larry Elder as sort of the uh, the radio talk show host who goes on Fox News. Um, not super familiar with his career, but every time I've listened to him or I've heard his arguments, he seems to be sort of uh, a mainstream conservative guy, and he doesn't uh, lend himself to the accusations in that piece. Um, headlines like that seem to be a gift to, you know, any fundraiser for Larry Elder, because the fundraiser can run around, go to donors and say, look how scared they are. And I think that if, if you're going to make that kind of argument, it does show that you're, you're pr- pretty desperate. One thing about this race generally though, is I, I think that Newsom is taking it seriously. Now he's been telling his voters that it's certainly possible for him to leave. And, um, even if some of the shine has been taken off of uh, the Biden presidency in the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months, uh, Newsom certainly wants him out there in California. And uh, from from what has been reported thus far, uh, the president is going to, to be in California sometime before September 14th to, to rally the troops because uh, the governor does take Larry Elder and the rest of his challengers seriously.
0: Carl, what about that headline? I'm just curious. It's just... It just stuck out to me, just something that you, you don't normally see in the mainstream press.
2: <laughs> well, you, you haven't been reading the LA Times recently, I'm afraid, Andy. They were among the uh, entities that seemed to lose their way when Trump burst on the scene. Yeah, I mean, for years, there was a this, the worst slur you could say about a conservative black person in this country is that they were an Uncle Tom. Uh, this is now the, the woke generation's version of that, even uglier. The face of white supremacy, the black face of white supremacy, um, and but but the what justifies it is this uh, piece in that uh, is this is this line in that opinion piece. Um, elder opposes every single public policy idea that's supported by black people to help black people. This has been true for decades, but is particularly problematic given the racial reckoning following the murder of George Floyd. Now. What that seems almost like uh, liber- the the progressive wing of, of liberalism in this country no longer even understands the argument in favor of conservatism, which is in this case a, a paraphrase. Of, you know, there've been books written on this, but that the that the social these these social programs that, that the LA Times is talking about have actually continued black poverty and made it worse and and t- trap people in a cycle of dependency. Now, I, that's not my philosophy particularly, but that it's a respectable one. And to either not understand even what conservatism is, let alone why a black person would be a conservatism, that's what's alarming there. Uh, and if they do understand it and they're just being dogmatic about it, that well, that's a
0: kind of cynicism we don't need in politics. Well, Tom, I mean, I'm going to give you the last word this week.
3: <laughs>
0: in terms of this California election, is there sort of an, a win ugly scenario for Gavin Newsom, where he, he wins, but he's so punished by this that other Democrats in the state look down the line and say, hey, we can do better?
1: That's a good question. I mean, maybe he'll still be... The fact that the fact that this is even happening and that it may even be close uh, is a bit of a warning sign for Democrats nationally, I think, in terms of which way the political winds are blowing. Um, but we'll see. Maybe he sails through. I, I'm not sure that it's going to dampen his political future in California, but he may emerge uh, a little bit more humbled and chastened than than he would have, uh, you know, certainly than he was before because he was he was one of the, you know, sort of the golden boy and Carl's pick for Democratic, wanted him to run for the Democratic nomination. He still might Last have an opportunity to yeah. do that, <laughs> right. Um, I want
2: him to but, be president but, now.
1: <laughs> I'll just end on this Larry Elder thing. I mean, it's just... There is no justification for that headline. It's absurd. And to the extent that Democrats and liberals continue to do that and to smear conservative African-Americans or to throw out the the idea that, you know, everything's racism now, uh, you can't disagree on anything, otherwise you're a, you know, a racist and a bigot and whatnot. It has cheapened the word. It has cheapened the debate. and And I think a lot of people just ignore it now. They just laugh it off and say, you know, I mean, in, in some ways it's made it. It's devalued it to the point where it certainly doesn't have the bite that it used to have a few years ago, and um, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's or maybe it's maybe it's not. But but the attacks on Larry Elder I think very much prove that point.
0: Well, I'm going to leave it there, and I want to thank Carl Cannon, Phil Wegman, and Tom Bevan. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast, check often. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It's especially good practice right now before the Labor Day cookouts you'll be having with your in-laws or future in-laws as the case may be. And we continue to feature in this feed some of the podcasts from Real Clear Defense on Afghanistan, which I highly recommend. And if you haven't already, you should subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. Free newsletter comes in your email every morning. I cannot start my day without it. You shouldn't either. You can sign up for it on RealClearPolitics.com. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for RealClearPolitics, I'm Andrew Walworth.